This Word on Fire Minute is brought to you by Advantage Futures. As Catholics, we must take advantage of new technology to spread the faith. Wordonfire.org is on the front lines, featuring the work of one of the church's best messengers, Father Robert Barron. At wordonfire.org, you'll find inspirational podcasts, videos, audio sermons, books, DVDs, and the Catholicism Project. It is one of the most ambitious efforts ever to promote the Catholic faith to the world. Catholicism is Father Barron's global documentary series, filmed in high definition and now in production for TV and DVD. Father Barron's series will illustrate the beauty and depth of the church and explain the Catholic faith on our own terms. It will be an exciting new way for families, parishes, and schools to teach Catholicism. Preview the production, join our email list, and contribute to the Catholicism Project at wordonfire.org. Become part of the story today. This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of Love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us, so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our second reading for this weekend is a passage from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And it's one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. Paul's talking about the meaning of Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? And here's the language he uses. Listen. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but always yes. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is the great yes. And Paul specifies exactly what he means. For however many are the promises of God, their yes is in him. Now, what does he mean here? Well, for a first century Jew, to say that is to say everything. Paul had been trained, as we know, in the Hebrew Scriptures at the feet of Gamaliel, the leading rabbi of the time. He would have been immersed, above all, in the history of Yahweh's promises to Israel. See, for biblical Jews, God is not some distant supreme being. We have this kind of deist understanding of God. He's a distant force. Well, that was the furthest thing from the mind of a first century Jew. They saw God as a person actively involved in the world and especially in Israel by means of his promises. God had promised what? Well, through the patriarchs, Moses and the prophets, a number of things to the people of Israel. He promised they would be a great people, more numerous than the stars in the sky. He promised they would inhabit a great land where they'd be able to flourish. He promised that they would worship God in purity and peace in a restored temple. He promised they'd be called back from exile to be one people in their homeland. Now, for centuries and centuries, through terrible crises, exile, warfare, etc., 
Israel waited for these promises to be fulfilled. Many must have despaired. In fact, we can hear overtones of that in the Bible itself. Many must have been convinced these promises were an illusion. But here's what Paul intuited in Jesus Christ, that all of these promises have come true, though in a most unexpected way. What did he see? What did Paul see? He saw that in the mystical body of the risen Jesus, the church, all the nations of the world, across space and time, were destined to be gathered as a new Israel. Would the people be called back home? Yes. Would they become a great nation? Yes. But precisely through the mystical body of the risen Jesus. Furthermore, in this mystical body of the risen Lord, and not simply in that strip of land at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, the new Israel, the church, would find its homeland. The promised land now becomes, Paul sees, the mystical body. It becomes the church. More to it, in the mystical body of the risen Jesus, in the church, the new Israel would find the right place to worship. Didn't Jesus himself say that he would tear down the old temple and in three days rebuild it, referring to the temple of his body? Yes, Israel would one day, would once again, worship God aright in the church. In the resurrection and in the establishment of the mystical body, Paul saw the hopes of Israel fulfilled. And he knew that this fulfillment affected everybody in the world. Here's what he saw. God has spoken in Christ his great yes to Israel. And in speaking that great yes, he said it to the whole world. What was Paul's job? To tell everybody about it. That's how Paul construed his missionary purpose, was to go to the ends of the world. He made it as far as Rome. He wanted to go to Spain. That meant Timbuktu in his time. It meant the ends of the world to say, yes, God has fulfilled his promises. Okay, what exactly is at the heart of all of this? What's at the heart of the mystical body? What's at the heart of of the fulfillment of God's promises. Here's the answer. The forgiveness of sins. Mind you, what prevented Israel from fulfilling its destiny? What over the centuries blocked the divine intentions? What kept the promises from being fulfilled? Well, it wasn't God's lack of fidelity. God was always faithful. What caused the problem was sin. Again and again, the prophets told the people that the promises were not fulfilled because they had wandered from God's laws. Why was Israel enslaved in Egypt? Why were they exiled in Babylon? Well, because of their sin. Ezekiel tells them that. Why was the temple not accomplishing its purpose? Why was the temple not a place of right praise? Well, because of the people's corruption. This means now, and Paul intuited this, Paul saw this, 
This means that the mystical body of Christ, the place where the promises are fulfilled, is the place of the forgiveness of sins. That's the heart of the church. G.K. Chesterton, the great writer, when he became a Catholic, was asked, how come you made this move? How come you joined the Catholic Church? His answer, because I wanted to have my sins forgiven. That's getting very close now to what these readings are about this weekend. That's how the promises of Israel are fulfilled. And now, with all this in the background, we can turn to our gospel for this week with a lot more understanding. What do we hear? We hear that Jesus is back at his home base in Capernaum. That's that little fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Because of his great reputation as a preacher and a healer, the crowds are gathering around him. We hear that a paralyzed man is carried to him, but because of the crowds, he couldn't come close. So his friends brought him up on the roof, broke through and lowered him down to Jesus. You know what I love about this story? It really has the texture, doesn't it, of a real event, of something very concretely remembered. Just that detail of the roof opening up, which was possible in homes in Jesus' time, and lowering the man down. That's not something that you would just arbitrarily make up. That's something that was remembered vividly. And keep in mind, Mark's gospel that we're reading from is written by the man who was the assistant to St. Peter who probably sat for many years in Rome listening to Peter preach and heard these stories told over and over again. This one, to me, has all that texture of something that was vividly remembered, and Mark probably heard it from Peter's lips many times. Who was the paralyzed man? Well, as I've been saying, he was certainly a real figure, but he's also in Mark's theological imagination, and Mark was a great theological writer, a great spiritual master. In his theological imagination, he was an apt symbol of Israel paralyzed in its sin. What's the problem with Israel? Again, not lack of God's fidelity. The problem is sin. What's it done to Israel? It's paralyzed Israel. It can't move. It can't act. It can't react as God wants it to. Sin is essentially self-absorption. That means it's a kind of freezing of the self around its own fears and preoccupations. Augustine said, curvatus in se, to be caved in around the self. That's the nature of sin. Think of Dante's image of hell, not as a place of fire, but as a place of ice. Ah, it's much better, isn't it? A place where we're stuck, where we're frozen, where the kings and queens of our own little tiny kingdom, precisely as big as the, as the ego itself. So the first thing that Jesus says to this man, lowered down to him, is, Child, your sins are forgiven. Notice, please, he doesn't address the physical malady first. First, he addresses the spiritual malady. And this is precisely now what Jesus means for Israel, the forgiveness of sins. Israel longed for the forgiveness of its sins, hoped for it, prayed for it, 
sacrificed in the temple trying to gain it. The point is they didn't receive it until God came in person, addressing their sins particularly, ultimately on the cross, taking them upon himself. Jesus meant for Israel the forgiveness of its sins. How wonderful, too, in the symbol of of the man lower down. Israel couldn't come to God on its own, couldn't solve the problem of sin on its own. They had to be carried to Christ. Those standing around, by the way, got what Jesus meant immediately. Here's what they say. Who's this man think he is? Who but God alone can forgive sins? Right, right. As I've often said, Jesus is speaking and acting here in the very person of Yahweh. He's doing something that no prophet would ever have dared to do. You know, we couldn't imagine Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the prophets. We couldn't imagine any of the patriarchs, Moses or David or Solomon, any of them, pretending to forgive people's sins. I mean, all these people knew they were sinners in need of forgiveness. Here's the radical difference of Jesus, and that's the point that Mark wants to make. He is the very embodiment of Yahweh's forgiveness of his people. Notice now, the man's physical healing follows from his spiritual healing. Jesus, after forgiving his sins, commands him to pick up his mat and walk. So, what's the lesson? Israel and we, the new Israel, are capable of movement once our sins have been forgiven. Once we get over this this frozen isolation of our sin, now we're able to act and to move and to follow the promptings of God's will. Our paralysis spiritually is conquered and we can move. Ah, That's what the church is all about. That's why it's the place where the promises have been fulfilled. Notice, please, how the Mass is all about the forgiveness of sins. Your venial sins are forgiven at every Mass. The church exists for the forgiveness of sins. How sad, therefore, as I conclude, that so many stay away from the sacraments of the church. How many stay away from the Mass? How many stay away from the sacrament of reconciliation? But see, for Paul, that's crazy. For Paul, that would be a contradiction. That's what the church is all about is to announce the forgiveness of sins in and through which the promises to Israel are fulfilled. God bless you. That was Father Robert Barron's homily for last Sunday. Now, with this week's homily, here again is Father Barron with Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Well, friends, we come now to the first weekend of Lent, this holy season of Lent, a time of spiritual discipline. And how wonderful that we begin with this story of Noah and the ark. The church gives us this reading as our first reading. It sets the tone now for the whole season of Lent. This great saga of Noah and the ark is so much more than a sort of charming children's story. For many ways, it expresses the whole drama of salvation. Ancient peoples, I've mentioned this to you before, I know, 
But ancient peoples were frightened of the water. They went only reluctantly on long sea voyages. And again, keep in mind in these old, you know, leaky boats and in these rickety ships, of course the water was frightening. So the stormy, chaotic sea came to symbolize for them all that was opposed to life and to full human flourishing. That's why at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, we hear that God's spirit hovered over the tohu vabohu, Hebrew for the stormy, unformed chaos. God's spirit, God's creative spirit, hovers over that chaotic mess and brings forth from it life and order. Karl Barth, the great Protestant theologian, referred to das Nichtige, his German for the nothing, the non-being, all that's opposed to God's creative intentions. So, if we read this story now symbolically, at the time of Noah, the stormy waters are back. Don't read the flood here so much as God's arbitrary punishment. Rather, it symbolizes the consequences of sin. Sin is opposed to God's intentions, and sin destroys. Sin separates. Sin divides God's great creation. It undermines what God wants. See, here's the great good news. Even when sin is at its most powerful, God's grace is greater. God sends, as it were, a rescue operation in the form of Noah's Ark. Onto this Ark is gathered a microcosm of God's good creation, a remnant of the original creation. And during the stormy time, life, order, harmony are preserved. Then, when the storm dies down, when the waters recede, Noah lets out the life and thereby becomes a second Adam. Noah presides over the renewal of the earth. The purpose of this divine rescue operation was precisely that, to renew the face of the earth. God's not arbitrarily uh, punishing. God is cleansing and purifying by preserving a microcosm of his good order. This is why the Bible speaks in relation to Noah of a covenant. A covenant. God makes a bond, something like a marriage bond between himself and this remnant of his people. They will be a people after his own heart and thus the source of the renewal of the whole world. This Noah covenant becomes the prototype of of all the covenants that God will later make, the covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David, shaping and forming a people after his own heart, a people whose task it will be, listen, to witness to his good order in the midst of a stormy and fallen world. This is why, for example, St. Augustine, reads Noah's Ark as a symbol of the city of God, the city of God down through the ages, embodied in the great saints. 
often, like Noah's Ark bobbing on the surface of the water, the city of God just barely holds its own in the midst of the flood. But in fact, in fact, this little tiny vessel is the carrier of God's promise, the guarantee of God's purpose. Don't look, Augustine said. How important this message is for all times. Don't look at what the world holds out as important. What is great in the eyes of a fallen world is often very small indeed in God's eyes. Look rather for those little places, those out-of-the-way places where God's life is on display. Those Christians are the keys to history. Again, it's a very important point, I think. What's going on in the world? What's happening? Well, we look to the presidents and prime ministers, and we look to Wall Street bankers. We look to captains of industry. We look to the obvious movers and shakers. But see, very often, they're nothing in the eyes of God. They're not the bearers of God's purpose. Very often, it's a small, simple, humble person or institution or set of events. That's how we read history. Look for the Noah's arcs. Now, against this background, provided by the first reading, we can much better understand Jesus. Jesus was seen by the first Christians as the new and definitive Noah, and his mystical body, the church, as the new and definitive ark. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus spoke of the new and everlasting covenant in his blood. He's hearkening right back to the covenant that God made with Noah. Jesus is saying, what began with Noah reaches its fulfillment in me. This marriage between divinity and humanity reaches its full point in me, who am, in person, the marriage of divinity and humanity. Jesus is the true Israel, the captain of the ship, the embodiment of God's creative intentions toward the world. He is therefore the captain of this boat onto which we are all invited. I spoke last week about Paul and Paul's message that Christ is God's great yes to the world. We might express it this way now. The message of the first Christians was, get on board. The ark and the captain have appeared. Now get on board the ship. Our gospel is from Mark's gospel. We hear his very laconic account of Jesus' temptation in the desert. We don't have all the details you get in, in Matthew and Luke. Mark gestures, though, very simply to something. He says the animals ministered to Jesus, or rather the, the angels ministered to Jesus in the desert, and he was with the animals. You see what that is? It's a kind of hearkening back to Noah. Noah on the ark with all the animals is a symbol of the rightly ordered creation. Jesus now come among us is the one who's going to knit creation back together. There he is with the angels and with the animals. The whole purpose of the church, his mystical body, 
is to be an agent for the transfiguration of the world. Now we can see more clearly why we were given this reading at the beginning of Lent. As the season of grace commences, we are meant to become more aware of our sins, of all the ways that the tohu vabohu has invaded our lives. See, we're meant to notice the flood that is all around us and the flood to which we have contributed. Don't blind yourself to it. That's, that's no way forward. I mean, those who said in Noah's time, oh, it's no big deal, just a, a few days of rain, well, they're the ones who were destroyed. No, no, to be aware of the flood, of the danger that sin causes is a key element. And that's why, listen now, that's why Lent is a great time for introspection, for contrition, and for confession. It's a good time to pause, look deeply at our lives, look inside, honestly, do a searching moral inventory. Realize the way the floodwaters have invaded you. It's time to renew your commitment to the covenant, to abide by the demands of God so as to become renewed. How do you do it concretely? Well, I recommend three great duties of Lent. Prayer, fasting, the giving of alms. Pray. Pray. Renew your covenant agreement. That's what prayer is. Prayer is communion with God. Often we'll say, well, sure, I mean, God's the center of my life. God's my everything. God's my all. Really? Really? Show it. Prove it. Embody it. To be a person of the covenant is to be a person of prayer. To pray, it means for us Catholics, above all, go to Mass. If you're not going every week, get to it. If you're going every Sunday, resolve during Lent to go every day. If you've been away from the rosary, get back to it during Lent. You never spend time in front of the Blessed Sacrament? Start. Prayer is a way of confirming the covenant, living out the covenant. Second duty of Lent, fasting. Fasting has to do with detachment from the things of the world, all those convenient substitutes for God. You're too involved with pleasure, money, power, honor. Fast from them. See, fasting, friends, is a great way to get in touch with our own sinfulness. It's a way to get in touch with the flood waters. And then detach yourself from them. Stop turning them into gods by fasting from them. Finally, almsgiving is the great practice of Lent. It has to do with solidarity. God's covenant is ultimately with the whole world. And therefore, salvation takes place always in a communal setting. Give to those who are poor. Give your time to those who are lonely. Give your attention to those who are isolated. Give your forgiveness to those from whom you are estranged. 
all forms of almsgiving, of building up the community. See, friends, in all these ways, we become aware of the flood, yeah, and and we learn again how to get on the boat. Get on the boat of the church. Enter into the practices and dynamisms of the church. And you'll find yourself in that place of safety in the midst of the storm. Let Noah's Ark stay in your imagination as a vivid Lenten image. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.